If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here we are entering the last weekend of the first month of 2023. What have we learned? We are finally moving forward with healthcare reform. Get her done. Here, Scott Thompson. Oh, 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 uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today, playing the Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye doing how sweet it is. Uh, remember James Taylor had a massive hit with that. Uh, Marvin Gaye, you ask, why are we playing the Marvin Gaye? Well, you know, uh, Rolling Stone, top 200 singers of all time. No Celine Dion, but Marvin Gaye. Coming in at number 20. Number 20. So there you go. We'll be playing that uh, or versions of uh, coming up. All right. Uh, enough of that. What is going on in the world? It is um, It's another fascinating day. The Prime Minister is addressing caucus this afternoon. Uh, the Parliament resumes on Monday. So, you know, that's going to be... Um, that's going to be interesting. Uh, another thing where we, the, the World Health Organization deciding COVID-19, COVID-19, it was almost three years. Like theoretically, it was last month, December of last year, hence 19, COVID-19. But it's virtually been three years since this was de- declared a world pandemic. Um, nothing, you know, I mean, nothing changes when you remove the world the word pandemic uh but that's what they're talking about today just to the use of the terminology and where we are three years also holocaust memorials going on auschwitz uh, Aus, uh, auschwitz uh, liberated uh, 78 years ago soviet troops by soviet troops oddly enough is not bizarre january 27th 1945 talk about that coming up a little later on as well it's the anniversary of the convoy uh hang on let me listen I don't think I can hear anything. Oh, very faintly. No, there's nothing going on there. Ottawa has resumed to the boring town that it always has been. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh, as well. Oh, health care. Um, uh, I want to play you this clip of uh, of the premier because, of course, uh, the prime minister now deciding to meet with all of the premiers. That coming up uh, next month as well. And there was chatter about you know them separating and not staying united and whatever. Here's what uh, the premier had to say on the health care. Meetings. I just look forward to uh, working with the Prime Minister and their team to come up with a program that, again, will be transparent, will always be accountable, and make sure that we have funding in, in different areas, no matter if it's uh, hiring new nurses or, or doctors or working with us on the, on the backlog surgeries, uh, just to name a few. All right. So there's the conservative leader of Ontario. Here is the conservative leader, uh, federal conservative leader of the uh, official opposition telling us again what we all know and what is wrong. But, you know, not a lot of alternatives. And I guess that he doesn't have to. We're not in an election. But here, here we go. Listen. Seriously, look around you. Crime is raging out of control in our streets. Our people are desperate that they'll have to lose their homes because of rising inflation and interest rates the government promised would never happen. People are losing loved ones at record rates to violent crime and drug overdoses. And families who've been locked down for two years because of COVID 
are now locked down at airports when they try to get away for a small vacation. Yo, happy Friday, everybody. Woo, here we go. <laughs> Uh, we know all that. And, you know, um, um, the prime minister constantly points to Mr. Uh, uh, Polly Evra and, and that he's not saying anything, you know, and really he doesn't have to. There is no election campaign. Uh, but I certainly see his point in the sense that I think we all know how bad it is now. I think we all know that. I think we all realize that. Um, now it's, you know, um, what would you do with uh, climate change? What would you do uh, with health care? I think those rather than, you know, we already know it's broken. We certainly know the Liberal Party's broken, and we're not sure that the Conservative Party has been fixed yet either. So, you know, where, where do you go with that? But it was interesting. We were talking to Alyssa Freeman yesterday, who's a PR um, uh, expert and can really identify the spin. And she brought up a very valid point. And the Prime Minister, uh, what his strategy is, what their public relations strategy is, is to try to paint everyone who does not think exactly the same way as he does as right-wing extremists you know there's a picture of the convoy that type of person those racist extremists uh, misogynistic uh, deplorables so if you don't think like him that's everybody else is put into that category into that silo and the middle the middle of canada is not extremist so again this is very divisive i mean you know we've seen a conservative party that's veered very much to the left and anything to the right of that and that includes the center is now being labeled as convoy and you know it's i think that's where the problem lies uh and hopefully both parties will take a, a good look in the mirror and um and and try to work for canadians as we move forward i know i'm not holding my breath either all right we've uh, talked a lot of late about uh ontario's um move to you know uh, well a few years ago got off coal and now the grid is incredibly clean and we talk about evs and expansion there uh, obviously chatter earlier on uh, in the year last year rather in regard to uh defasco and their efforts to electrify their operations and such but what about the power supply coming in how strong is that ontario power generation ge hitachi nuclear energy S- snc labeling group and acon have joined forces to build a small nuclear uh, a small modular nuclear reactor in ontario to talk more about all of this david novog is with us professor in the department of engineering physics uh and with us from mcmaster university in here now david thank you for the time i hope you're well i'm very well scott thanks for having me in so uh, first of all how is how secure is ontario's uh, uh source of energy where are we uh, we certainly know that a lot of evs and such are on the horizon are we ready for all this yeah i guess that's that's the main point of, of what people are looking at today we can't be talking about electrifying to reduce our carbon emissions without growing the electricity grid and i I think the announcements today and the refurbishments at Bruce site and Darlington site are all paving the way for us, you know, to make sure five years from now when there's a whole lot more EVs and a whole lot more industries running on electricity instead of, you know, what the the fossil fuels they used to run on. I, I guess the time to build is now so that we're ready in, in that time frame. So tell us about this, uh, and it's a modular a nuclear reactor, smaller. What does this mean? You know, there have been some nuclear construction projects overseas that have gone off the rails, you know, huge, large construction sites. And and because of a lot of different reasons, 
Um, the construction wasn't on time and it wasn't on budget. So a big part of the nuclear sector has rethought how we should build reactors instead of trying to make them, you know, much larger and, and these huge units. If we built them smaller so that we could build the, most of the components in a f- factory and, you know, have some controlled robotics doing that construction, we could you know, be a lot more certain that the construction would be on time and on budget because, you know, everything would be manufactured mostly ahead of time in modules and really only assembled at site as opposed to, you know, a huge, huge construction site. So, so this is the whole idea is to build them smaller so we can we can do them in, in, in stages and have a lot more certainty on the cost and on, you know, the outcome. Uh, sounds just more uh, efficient. Is this you were you were talking about the the nuclear reactors, the Pickerings, the Darlingtons that, that we have? All obviously have been refurbished. Their life has been extended, but we still hear that that life is only so long. Is this mm-hmm. also to prepare for when they are eventually decommissioned, if that happens? I think this first build is really just going to be about meeting, you know, the short-term future demand in the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. The Darlington refurbishments and Bruce, Bruce refurbishments should get us another 25 or 30 years out of those units. So you're right, though, 100%. In the next not-too-distant future, we're going to look at how are we going to replace those low-carbon sites or, or you know, uh, re- refurbish them a second time, maybe. Um, so th- I still think that's not on the horizon. Horizon yet, really, I think you know the OPGs and the provincial governments are focused on the the wave of upcoming electrification and, and how we can meet that demand when it comes. Uh, many have talked of uh, small um, natural gas uh, plants and such. Is this is this uh, nuclear's future? Doing this type of modular, smaller installation. I think there's still some debate. I think in some jurisdictions, building small reactors and, you know, building several of them. For example, at Darlington, the, the plot of land there could probably house about four of those units that they're building. So, you know, you can, you can build multiple small units or you can build a large unit. And, and the going sentiment, at least for most people, is that maybe building more but smaller units would, would be preferable because, you know, you, you don't have to risk as much cash in the construction and, and you're more certain that things will be delivering electricity on the timeline that, that, that you're, you know, that you propose. What is the timeline for this particular project? So the 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 announcement is, is it's a really unique project. It's it's sort of like uh, OPG, ACOM, SNC, Lavalin are are really setting up almost like their own company that combines the skill sets of of those three large organizations to to build you know sort of a coordinated project instead of a bunch of subcontractors. And their goal is to have the construction complete in 2028. Is what I is what I saw today. Uh, people always concerned about safety. Is that an issue here? I think these smaller, uh, small modular reactors have a, a lot, uh, a lot more safety built into the design, um, and lessons learned, you know, after Fukushima, after Chernobyl, all these past nuclear accidents, the engineers learn a lot about the behavior of the designs. And really these latest designs, you know, that have only really been brought to market in the last five or 10 years 
are ha, have features in them that just didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago when we built our original units in Ontario. So the safety case is much clearer, much much uh, much more robust than any reactors that have ever been built. David Novog with us, Professor, Department of Engineering, Physics, McMaster University, Ontario Power Generation, GE Hitachi, uh, SNC-Lavalin, and ACON, joining forces to build a small modular nuclear reactor in Ontario. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. I appreciate being on the show today. And enjoy the hockey game. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. As you are aware, I'm sure, uh, and, you know, as far as inflation and the cost of living, every time you go out or you go to the grocery store, you fill your tank, whatever it is, uh, pay your bills, <laughs> you're feeling the pinch. And uh, today, or sorry, uh, this week, rather, uh, another pinch from the Bank of Canada as they jump the key interest rate uh, a quarter of a point to 4.5 percent, uh, alluding this could be the last one or hopefully slowing down a bit uh, after obviously I guess about eight in a row uh, to talk more about all of this Don Fox executive financial consultant Fox Group IG private wealth management and is here now and of course you can hear planning your financial future every Saturday morning uh, right here on CHML Don thanks for the time hope you're well Doing great, Scott. Yourself? Pretty good. So far, so good. It's Friday. Um, yeah. So I remember doing your show um, a bazillion years ago, whenever the rates first went down. And I remember it was years. I mean, it was probably like two or three years before, okay, maybe these rates are going to stay low for a while. For the first few years, everybody was waiting for them to jump back up for the next. And then, you know, lo and behold, for the next, what, 15 uh, so years, uh, they stay traditionally incredible low, all of a sudden we're seeing all of these rate hikes in a row. Now, we should point out these are still historically very low interest rates, uh, but have we seen the end of what we saw over the last 10, 20 years? I'm going to go with, and my crystal ball says, I think we're, if we're not at the end, we're darn close to the end of seeing these rate increases. Um, inflation and interest rates go hand in hand. So if you look way back to the 80s, when you know, some people may remember the Canada savings bonds at 19.5% and mortgages were over 20. Well, inflation was 13.5% back then. Hmm. And so they're battling inflation with super high interest rates then. Well, this is kind of exactly what's gone on now. We've we've gone from virtually zero inflation, like between 1% and 2%, and historically low interest rates, as you put it. And then, and then you add a pandemic, a lot of money thrown in. We lowered the interest rates to keep the economy going. And so not only do we you know, add money to the whole pot, we had lowered interest rates. So we added a lot of demand for goods. And by doing that, inflation went up. And here we are now trying to play a little catch up with a lot of, as we saw last year, um, in interest rates rising. And that's basically where we are now with the prime lending rate at 6.7%. And a year, just over a year ago, was at two point four five percent. So just to put it in perspective, that is, that's a like a one hundred and fifty seven percent increase, like more than double. So it's a it's a big jump. We know that this all takes time to work its way through the system. Is it working? Is it is it getting the results that it was meant to get? It has. We 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 saw inflation there pushing eight percent. You're seeing it down around six percent. The states was pushing nine percent. They're down around seven percent. So yes, it is. It is doing the, exactly what it was supposed to do. And you think about it. If you had, say, a line of credit with a hundred thousand dollar line of credit, 
at the old rates at 2.45% plus a quarter percent, usually prime plus a quarter, you're paying 225 a month. Well, now you're paying at 6.95, you're paying $579 a month. You're paying $354 a month more. Well, if you take that money out of the economy, times up by the population that has has debt, which is a large, like a large percentage, well, they can't buy those goods with that money anymore. So that has a that hinders, um, it helps and hinder inflation is basically what it does, and it is working. It does take, on average, about a year for an increase in interest rates to affect inflation, and you're starting to see what happened six or eight months ago starting to take place now. Uh, so at what point I feel like, you know, our hands behind our back, we say, okay, uncle, that's enough. Uncle, uncle, <laughs> how do you know when you've hit that point? Well, it's, 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 I think there's a few people at that point right now. It's tough. It, you know, it, we always, when we talked about on the show, Scott, you have to make sure that you have excess money because we knew those rates weren't going to last. Those were pandemic rates. This was a, you know, hopefully we don't have pandemics very often, but this was all to help the economy. And so we knew it wasn't going to last, but we did not expect this kind of massive increase in interest rate. Nobody saw this much coming. And so, yeah, we, even if you're very prepared, you probably weren't this prepared. So those that locked up for five years in a mortgage, fantastic. You probably, you may get skirt the whole thing. And by the time your mortgage matures, you may be at a low interest rate again or a lower. I mean, it won't be as low as it was, but mm. it may be a five-year mortgage, say, at, say, 4% or something like that. But now, you know, you're looking at five-year mortgages uh, more at like four, five and a half percent. And, you know, you, you got you to gotta take that as it is. And, you know, the mortgages are getting quite large. You know, million-dollar mortgages is, was not uncommon. So mm. you multiply that by the increase in interest rate, it adds up to a ton of money. Uh, what's uh, not really accurate or what feels different this time, although, you know, as you've said many times, these are cyclical, it all happens, uh, is the unemployment rate is traditionally low, but we are uh, uh, right now untraditionally low for some reason, because usually when we're on the cusp of a recession, unemployment starts to climb, although we are starting to hear of more and more uh, layoffs, stuff like that. Are, are we expecting that unemployment rate to rise? Uh, generally speaking, uh, unemployment rate is what they call lagging indicator. It kind of takes place after everything happened. People generally want to keep their employees as long as they can because, uh, as we know, it's been very tough to hire. So the, uh, when they finally say, okay, we need to let go of people, it's usually after they say, okay, we have a lower demand of goods, our profits are declining. So it's after everything takes place. Quite often, by the time the uh, unemployment rate starts to spike, we're actually on our way out of a recession. Now, ours, this, like you mentioned, Scott, the employment rate's quite high, and and we're we may end be in for a very soft landing because we've got such em- great employment. So hopefully, that's exactly what we end up not a like not a hardened uh, recession, but maybe just a little dip. And maybe we, who knows? Maybe even skirt the whole recession altogether. But this is the game there. You know, the government was playing have to increase the interest rate, but they didn't really want a big recession. But inflation is such a big cancer to everybody's living standard of living they do not want this to continue on for very long so let me ask you this will the recession that we may never get or is impending who knows the soft one will that be more difficult than what we've been going through up till now or have we gone through the worst part of it the recession part will be easier 
It, you know what? As long as you have a job, it'll probably yeah, be better. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Because uh, the in, in, interest rates will start to drop. Inflation is starting to um, get lower. And so those that continue to work, you're actually going to say, okay, good. We weathered the storm. We're, we're okay. Now, there's a silver lining to these increase in interest rates. Those that have money in the bank, you know, there's yeah. such a time where you made oh, you made zero. And for the most part, people are still making very low rates, just sitting money in banks. But right now, for example, our cash account is earning 4.4%. So if you had 100000 sitting in a bank and you say, well, I just want to leave it liquid, but you could be earning $366 a month. A year ago, you may be lucky to make a half a percent per, per year. So at least those that have money can actually benefit with these, little, these higher interest rates right now. All right, Don Fox with his executive financial consultant with the Fox Group IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening tomorrow morning for more on all of this. Oh, and our guest will be uh, Philip Peterson, who is uh, chief strategic. No, I'm messing it up. Uh, strategic. <laughs> no, Street, uh, chief strategy. Uh, no, what is it? Go ahead, tell me. Chief, chief financial strategist. There you go. Is he gone? We lost him. All right. He's, he's gone. He's done. All right. Uh, Don Fox of planning your financial future tomorrow, Saturday morning. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. All right. Uh, I'm getting to the point, uh, and, and you know how I feel about politics. Uh, I, I'm, 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 um, I'm a defined centrist. I refuse to be labeled either the left or the right. But when things are so extreme left, anybody to the right of them, even the center, looks extreme right. And now I'm getting tired of it from all sides. Uh, so to calm me down is Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Okay, so here's my frustration, Henry. Um, you know, I'm frustrated constantly hearing Pierre. Polyevra tell us over and over and over again what is wrong with the country uh, because I think we all know. I don't think we need to be banged over the head with it anymore. I think, what, you know, the whole broken thing, I get it, but I, I don't see any sign of repair there. Uh, now, again, there's not an election, so I guess you don't have to, you know, unveil your hand. On the other hand, uh, again, no election, but we've got the Prime Minister positioning everyone who doesn't agree with exactly what he thinks. He paints them all as extreme right-wing wackies chasing convoys and all that sort of thing. So will any of this change during the, uh, whenever the election campaign arrives, or is this just a sample of what we're going to see? Well, uh, the answer is I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I really think we're going to go the four-year term here. I'm in, I may be wrong, but I, that's what I expect. So everything I say is within that context. Uh, and I, you know, and I'm certainly, uh, you know, the conservatives, the Pavier could, you know, could do some different things in terms of delivering his mes- message, particularly in in, um, in Quebec, but also in Ontario, and and uh, you know, and uh, be a bit more positive, and uh, you know, and, and instead of sort of you know banging the table and saying things are really bad, you know. I think a little bit more of what Trudeau does where, yeah, we know everybody is suffering. And so he doesn't bang the table. It's just sort of with regret, but we have to fix it. But we know you're suffering. And it's a little so it's a little softer. It's a tone is there is, is the difference. It's a very the prime minister has a very polite insult. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he's, he has a tone. He says, I understand. I understand you've got yeah. problems. And uh 
and uh, you know, but in, but he's but of course he's saying, you know, we're going in the right direction, but we have to, you know, do better, and we have to shore up what we're doing, and we're going to get there. So it's it's a positive message that that people. It's something that people like to hear. Uh, you know, he doesn't deny that there's the problems, but he's you know. He, he he presents it in a way that I'm you know I'm I'm going to improve things I know you know I'm you're suffering and but and, and there's some positive things and he's going to you know I think he looks like he's going to set up a a, a deal with the uh, premiers on uh, health care and mm-hmm. uh, the infusion of money in various ways uh, that's going to come out of all this so be able to say uh, you know I'll, I'm doing something I'm cooperating with the premiers and I'm putting more money into things that are very important for people so we'll have a better health care system and uh, we'll fix, we're, we're fixing the problems. And so that, that's the kind of message. I think that's the message that people like to hear. And I think uh, that's why Polyev has to, you know, just can't say everything, is, you know, the thing is wrong and broken and we have to go in a different direction. I, that isn't a message I think people want to hear, particularly in Ontario and Quebec. And clearly, it has worked well for the liberals uh, for years. Um, this really is Pierre Polyevre's election to lose, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not sure anyone's going to stand up and go, you know what? That person's amazing. I'm going to vote for them. I think it's going to be any, you know, anybody but whoever is in charge, anybody but the incumbent, anybody. I, I think they'll just vote change. Is that, do you think well, we can see that coming? Well, we can see that coming. I mean, it, what we would see when, when, when the people are like that, uh, and let me say that, you know, if we go the full term, we're talking about 10 years of uh, Justin Trudeau. And that, you know, at that point, people start to get itchy and say, well, maybe we ought to have somebody else. Ten points. There's something about eight to 10 years that, that people start to say, well, I, I think it's enough for this guy. <laughs> and that's true whether it's conservative or yeah. liberal uh, in general. And uh, so, but they have a lot of choices. I mean, in Quebec, they could do a lot, you know, swing a whole bunch of votes for the Bloc Quebecois. Uh, in other places, the NDP should go would go up, and uh, then you you'd have to look and say, okay, where is the Conservatives? Do you know they might even get more seats than the than the Liberals if if that kind of feeling sets in. But then the problem with the Conservatives in the in the uh, Parliament is. Who, you know, he, it's hard for him to f- make a deal with anybody else in there to, to, to get, you know, ma- majority things through. I mean, his best bet might be the Bloc Quebecois, but they're, they're always an uncertain partner to anybody. And, uh, but it's certainly not going to be the NDP. Uh, and the ND, and the Liberals aren't certainly going to help him out. So then that, it's a tough road to go at that point. So, but, you know, so there is a lot, there's a lot that can happen over the next two years. And, uh, you know, and, uh, I just, I think, uh, needs to, if he softens his, his arguments, not change his positions, but on his tone, tries yeah. to be a bit softer. And, uh, but he's going to have to show first that, that there's an erosion of, uh, Quebec, of liberal support in Ontario. Because I think, I think the people in Quebec who are likely to, you know, change their mind about them. They always have one eye on on, on Ontario, and they look to see: well, is the government losing losing uh, uh, you know power in uh, or popularity in Ontario? Then it makes them feel okay. I, I I'm going to get on this bandwagon. But they generally don't find Quebec in these situations taking the lead. So that's 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 the thing that we have to keep an eye on.
Henry, I think you were right. I thought this would uh, collapse pretty quickly, but yeah, I, I think it's going to go the exactly as you're saying, just simply because there's no advantage for anybody right now to yeah. be at an election. Uh, we're out of time. Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Always fun, Henry. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Right, same to you, Scott. All right. We certainly know the story of a uh, demonstration at uh, Gore Park. John A. McDonald's statue uh, toppled. The city decided to leave it up. Uh, protesters pushed it down. We found out, or sorry, April protester. Uh, we learned yesterday that um, the person that was charged, Toronto man that was charged in connection with toppling the statue in 2021, uh, is no longer facing a, mis- a mischief charge. That was stayed. And the uh, 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 official saying... Um, to move on, uh, basically, uh, uh, after the statue was taken down and then, of course, the charge laid, I uh, didn't feel that um, uh, continuing along, this was a, a legitimate protest, and it won't, won't solve the bigger issue if uh, this charge was to continue. Uh, lots of ways to look at this, and as always, in high-profile cases, there's lots of stuff in the back door that we just don't realize. Let's bring in Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer, Rossi McBride, former Crown attorney, with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, certainly, Scott. I'm fine. How about you? So far, so good. Uh, this stayed. Uh, this charge stayed. What does that mean? What do we know? What don't we know here? Well, um, the Crown has to make a decision in terms of proceeding with any criminal charge, whether there is, number one, a reasonable prospect of conviction. If there isn't, then the Crown will withdraw the charge. And the other alternative that the Crown may rely upon to choose not to proceed is if they feel it's not in the public interest to proceed. It's a broad kind of test. It's meant to embrace a wide variety of situations where you say, gee, we do have evidence, we could proceed, but we don't feel it would be worthwhile to proceed, so we stay the proceedings. In law, staying proceedings means the proceedings have been halted, and if they haven't been recommenced within a year, they're deemed never to have started. So that's what happened here, Scott. I think there may have been a few people that were apparently or allegedly involved in the damage to the statue, but it was just, I think, the one guy who was charged. I, that's, I'm going from what I read in the paper. Right. Um, the uh, attorney for the accused said, criminalizing legitimate protests will never solve the bigger issue. Many will say neither will toppling statues. Um, again, we don't really know all the reasons behind the stay. That being said, um, people are worried that now this will be used as a precedence and that if you know you decide to go to topple the statue, you can say, well, this guy was let go. Is that valid? Well, sure, because and the difficulty you have, and I mean, I read the story, and I have to tell you that I was wondering, when the Crown says it's not in the public interest, and that's all, and the Ministry Attorney General declines to comment further, appreciating that Defense Counsel might characterize it as uh, criminalizing legitimate protest is the way he chooses to put it, we don't really know that that's the basis upon which the Crown decided not to proceed. We don't know whether there were issues in relation to whether they had decent enough evidence to identify the guys being involved. Although, from what I read in the paper, some of his comments might seem to suggest he wasn't really disputing that he was. And for the Crown to take the position that within the realm of freedom of expression causes kind of damage to property, and they didn't want to run that and see if that was going to be argued, that would be a that'd be a difficult position to take. Um, you know, it'd be one that the burden would be on the defense to show that proceeding against him would infringe on his right of freedom of expression. And uh, a judge would have to decide that. But we don't know. And so the difficulty I have in even commenting too far is it's not clear what the reasoning process was, what the substantive basis was for the decision to stay proceedings beyond simply not in the public interest. 
why wasn't it? And when you don't put a more detail on the record as to why, then you leave people in a position saying, well, I guess then, who knows, I guess it is okay. You never want to encourage that. In fact, as a, as a crown, you certainly want to discourage behavior that you'd feel is, uh, is criminal in nature. But again, Scott, how people might take it, when you don't have a clear indication to the basis for the decision, people have a lot of room to take it a lot of ways, and many of them might be wrong. So, Jeff, why would they not explain the reasoning for this? Because obviously, to some, it's protest, to some, it's vandalism. So why not clarify that in your decision? You know, I'd really be speculating on that, Scott. I can tell you when, when I was a Crown, and that's a long time ago, but I think the reasons were equally valid. You don't have to put a book-length article on, on the record as to why you chose not to proceed. But to, to give the conclusion, not in the public interest, without giving the reasoning process behind it, it is, it is really not as full a picture as uh, I think the public would want to have. But for me to say, well, here's why the Crown did it. They may have had a perfectly good reason, Scott, but I don't know it. So I can't say to you, well, the reasoning they used was or wasn't good. That word again, I'm speculating. I'll ascribe to them good faith that there may well be a basis for them having proceeded the way they did. The difficulty I have just sitting like any other citizen say, well, what was that? And how, how can we know what you, why you did what you did when you don't tell us? Oh, so would that come up again, Jeff, if another case like this arises? Because, you know, if someone uses the same excuse and they say, well, it's different here. Well, how? Explain yourself. Well, when you, it, it wouldn't serve as any precedent in the sense that every case has its own different set of facts. And so you'd have to, a Crown would have to make the decision in relation to damage to property on the factual scenario that had to consider strength, weakness of the case, nature of the damage, and so forth. And the factors might not be identical. So certainly, well, defense counsel for somebody else charged with damaging property could say to a crown, hey, I want the same treatment that that guy got. There'd be no guarantee you could get it. You'd have to set a crown would, could say, well, here's why that's different from this one. A, B, C, D, we're proceeding. So that there was a stay here provides no guarantee, not even a lot of reassurance that someone doing something else to damage property might not still face a prosecution that may well proceed the full distance. Is this debate discussion over? Um, well, you know, the listeners may well have some, some interest, and who knows, sometimes it happens that there's enough public interest generated that the Attorney General's Department might say, well, we want to explain it further. I've seen that happen on occasion, but that doesn't necessarily follow. Public positions are generally taken by the Ministry of the Attorney General as opposed to the individual crowns. So the Crown can put things on the record, but for further question, I mean, Scott, have you phoned the Ministry of the Attorney General and say, what's your position? They say, we have no comment. Where does it leave you? You'd say, mm. but my listeners are clamoring for an answer. How can we not have an answer from you? Well, we have no comment. What do you do now with respect to uh, serving as a as a form of journalist? Not much more you can do at that stage, right? No, that's absolutely correct. We're all just shrugging and wondering. Uh, Jeff Manishin with us, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney. Always fun, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Be well. Certainly, Scott. You too. Keep well. Have a good weekend. All right. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A new poll from Leger sees a fair amount of concern about the healthcare system weighing on the minds of Canadians. And I think we're seeing a great big shift. Canadians used to just think their health consist, uh, health system was incredible. It was the best in the world. They would puff their chests out and brag to the people in the United States of how great it was. And then we got hit with a global pandemic. And since then, doctors, nurses, patients, advocacy groups have been screaming and yelling and, 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 
begging for help. And, you know, then, of course, uh, we promised we'd get to this after the pandemic. Uh, and then the, the big argument between private and public and private and public and private and public, which is so, so fed with so much misinformation because there's already a great portion of it that already is. Uh, and what Doug Ford has done last week, um, it certainly is really just expanding what's already there. Uh, it's reforming in the sense that it's changed in a system that seems impossible to do anything with. However, what has changed is the attitude of Canadians. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and he is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, sir. I hope likewise for you, and, and happy Friday to you. Back at you. So Doug Ford makes an announcement, and it's a pretty big deal. And there's some screaming and yelling for about 24 hours. And the only one that seems to complaining or be complaining are the ones that are benefiting from shoveling more money into an old system that doesn't work. I was surprised, so much so, uh, with the lack of 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 um, uh, of objection to all of this, that I, I my first thought was, why the heck did we didn't didn't we do this earlier? How are or how is the minds of, how are the minds of Canadians changing when it comes to their public health care and the Canadian health care system? How are their attitudes changing? Well, I think things are being, uh, you know, maybe the rose colored glasses are coming off and we're, we're being confronted with, with some real, some, some really big challenges. And I think what's happening is it's, it's not just in, 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 in our own province necessarily, but we're being bombarded with media reports of, of, uh, of really bad situations from coast to coast. And I think collectively it's starting to weigh in on the minds of Canadians to say, like is is the model broken like what do we like do we really need like not just it's not just a it's not just my province that's having a problem or it's not this particular government in my province that doesn't seem to do it well it's like everything and if everything's wrong maybe something's bigger at work right and i and i think we're seeing a bit of that in some of our numbers so our politicians have politicians got it wrong. They thought Canadians would say this and instead they're saying that or has the pandemic just proven to everyone, including uh, Canadians, that, boy, this system isn't as great as we thought it was. Well, look, I mean, I think you said it in your intro. First of all, I think politicians are starting to have to realize that what they did repeatedly over the last, say, 20, 25 years, shovel money in, uh, you know, some studies, let's build, expand this, but not effectively change how we actually deliver is maybe reaching a point where it's just not working anymore. And I think Canadians are starting to to start asking some harder questions and raising tougher expectations. I mean, 43% of Canadians in our survey are rating the healthcare system as poor uh, or very poor. Wow. I mean, 54%, okay, it's good. But you know what was shocking? And I think you touched on it. I mean, that same question in the U.S., um, it's, it's, uh, you know, 74% of Americans are saying their healthcare system is good. What? <laughs> what? Like, stop. Boy, <laughs> isn't that incredible considering the way we would puff our chests out and look at the Americans, look at them. You gotta, you have a heart attack, bring your credit card. And yet, you know, three quarters of them are satisfied. Whereas here it's, it's fallen drastically. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, that's a problem. And, and you know, maybe, uh, you know, Doug Ford, you know, Premier Ford might be on to, 
you know, like we, we've got to really sort of shake things up a little bit if we're going to try to uh, try to sort this out. I don't know, but right now, um, you know, there's there's too many uh, there there's too many stories back to back that are just uh, you know problem problem problem, and uh, I think Canadians are starting to wonder, like starting to lose a, maybe a bit of confidence. Do you think this is a turning point in this healthcare discussion? Because even for the last three years, it's like beating your head against a wall here. Nobody wanted to move. Provinces this position, feds that position, wah, 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 round we go. Yep. Is this a turning point? Because there really isn't a lot of opposition to this. You know, it could be. Um, I think that uh, it, what's going to be, what I think will be kind of interesting is, is uh, you know, it, I, it sounds like the federal government and the provinces are, are coming close to some fairly significant long-term funding deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that you might see some significant, uh, you know, pushback as to, well, hold, like, what does this mean? Like, what is this going to look like? Because just adding to what, into a system that, as you said at the beginning, doesn't seem to really be generating the results we want. Um, like, I, I think this is a bit of, maybe a bit of a watershed. It's hard to know. Like, I agree. Healthcare is, is a tricky one. It's, it's almost, um, it's the most important issue on everybody's mind that never really gets discussed. <laughs> Because yeah, no it's a hot potato. Yeah, nobody wants to touch it. That's for sure. Um, but yeah. this, to me, this really feels, Andrew, to me, like the public has spoken, and it's different from what yeah. the politicians have said. And yeah. you know what? It's working. <laughs> like, yeah. and 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 you know, I mean, that, that gives us pause to 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 reflect on this and think, wow, you know, if enough people do speak up, if enough people do express their opinion, we can honestly. You know, we can institute change. We can make things happen. I mean, it's a bizarre moment, I think. I, you know, I think so. And I think honestly, if, if, I mean, from a political standpoint, maybe that in these numbers, there's, there's enough, uh, you know, enough license and, and enough in, in these numbers for some of the political leadership and, and the premiers to, to really go into this and say, okay, well, let's look, let's look at options. I mean, I, I would love to see, uh, premiers, because premiers are closer to the healthcare system, to start to look at what are they doing in Europe, in some of those countries, yeah. and yeah. a lot of those countries have very, very uh, much more private public partnerships and and uh, yeah. you know different streams. Like it's a combination of the two. I think so, and you 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 know look we we've got lots of private, but it's it's around the edges, and uh, you know I think there's examples in some countries that that uh, you know could be very uh, you know very insightful and illuminating in terms of how it works there, and um, and quite frankly, when I look at some of these numbers, maybe everything that they do in the states isn't bad. Uh, there you go. <laughs> It used to be the case, right? You could never yeah, find the yeah. Amer- you can't do American. Well, there's that totally battle private. of public versus private. It's either public, private, public, private, and it's just not that black and white. No, I don't. I don't think so. And I think maybe there's in in here some courageous, uh, you know, premiers and leadership may may start to say, you know, we need to change, and here's an option. And you know, if you don't like it in four years, you're welcome to you know to change it. But I yeah. think it's going to work. And. Who knows? Andrew Ann's with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger. New poll from Leger sees a lot of concern uh, with Canadians and their health care system. Not as great as they once thought it was, and they want changes. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, sir, and uh, look forward to talking again. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Karen Lieberman is with us, senior digital broadcast journalist with Global News and her latest on the Global website, Finding the Rise in Anti-Semitism Through, or sorry, Fighting the Rise in Anti-Semitism Through Holocaust Education. And Karen is with us now. Karen, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, obviously, uh, Holocaust memorials all over the world today. Auschwitz liberated 78 uh, anniversary of January 27th, 1945. Um, what many f- might find unusual who, 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 who don't know the details, um, liberated by Soviet troops, which considering what is happening today in the world, almost seems uh, ironic, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I guess you're right about that. Um, I, I guess I'm just more focused on the fact that there was a liberation, thankfully, and it is an anniversary, anniversary that while somber, you know, thank goodness that we're able to mark it, right? Um, and it is astonishing that it's, it's basically, you know, 80 years past since this horrible, you know, horrifying dark chapter in our history, but such an important one that we're able to mark. And I'm, I'm also so glad that you're doing it, too. Um, after the obviously after the liberation and confirmation of what actually was happening and going down, uh, we kept hearing never again, never again, never again. Yet, obviously, we're seeing what has happened in Ukraine and in in, in in the the trouble through Europe and such. Does that make this even more uh, more need for reflection on what can happen? Because again, after this, it was never again. But have we learned those lessons? You know, we probably haven't, and and I think that um, I was listening to a few educators speak today, and and one of them, um, the Holocaust educator, was talking about the fact that you know genocide probably wouldn't be happening. We maybe maybe we wouldn't have had some of the genocides that we've seen, you know, in modern history, like Rwanda, as an example, that we, we can all remember, um, if people actually had learned the lessons of the past, right? So when we say never again, um, you know, why do we keep seeing it again? And I guess that the the answer to that is because people aren't learning, people aren't listening, um, and they're not applying the lessons of the past to to the present. Um, and so that's why I think it's so important. And, and I, I do, I do see glimmers of hope. Um, you know, I take comfort in knowing that, you know, as an example, Ontario is mandating Holocaust education. I'm, I'm astonished to be quite honest with you, with you that it's taken this long. Um, I had the privilege of having a Jewish private school education and, and I, and I, I realize what a privilege that is. And I don't say it just because, you know, don't assume that just because I'm Jewish that I know all the history. I don't. I'm constantly learning mm. like everybody else. Um, but I did learn it in school. And I'm, you know, I'm sad to say that it's, it's taken this long for other students to be able to learn it as well. Um, of whatever, every background, I think it's everybody should know, you know, what happened. Um, and so I take some comfort in the fact that Ontario this year mandated as it, it, it will be starting as of grade six. I think that's a great first step. Um, and I also think it's amazing that we have, you know, other efforts like I, you know, in a story that we have on Global News platforms tonight, we talk about the tour for humanity. It's a mobile like museum. Like how amazing is mm. that? You know, it's based in Toronto, but, but the fact that it's on a bus means that it can move around and other schools and not only like students, but, you know, um, maybe governments, maybe first responders, like other bodies can, you know, hire this bus to come by and, and give them an education too. Um, and I think that these are efforts that are, you know, amazing and, and tell me that there's hope. <laughs> 
Why do you think we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism? I mean, mm. what? I mean, obviously, it's a divisive world. I mean, everybody mm. seems to be angry with everybody today. But, but why do we see the rise in anti-Semitism? Do you think? Oh, that's a, such a great question. Um, you know, I think that there's so many factors. So, you know, we're in an era of Twitter and TikTok. You know, this is social. Everything's on social media, and and the reach is just astonishing, right? And so when Kanye or Ye or whatever he calls himself yeah. puts out, uh, a, you know, an anti-Semitic tweet or, you know, Instagram post or whatever it is, or does a podcast and says something ridiculous, like calling for, you know, DEFCON, th- Defcon 3 on the Jews or whatever it is, you know, like the reach is remarkable. And so, you know, as, as somebody mentioned to me, a spokesperson for B'nai B'rith, well, the CEO rather said to me, you know, all it takes is one person who doesn't know a Jewish person. You know, maybe it's somebody who lives in a small town or a small city in, in this country and has never met a Jew. And that's absolutely possible. You know, we are a small population. And here's somebody like a pop icon or, you know, one of these people who appear to be have some sort of authority voice say something that's wrong or inaccurate or anti-Semitic. And, and well, why wouldn't they believe him, Right. If he's able to put it out there, then it must be true. And yet it's obviously not. And it's, you know, a conspiracy theory or it's anti-Semitic or whatever it is. Um, and so and so the spread is just so possible in this in this social media era that we're living in. Um, you know, and then and something else that I uh, was learning and putting together this, this story for tonight. And, and I'm saying that I'm learning, too, because it's still a learning process for myself included um, as a Jewish woman. Um, you know, one thing that I was hearing was, you know, it anti-Semitism takes on different forms. And, you know, we all know what it looks like on the right. We've seen it. It's, you know, it's swastikas, it's Nazi symbols, it's ideology and stuff like that. And, And we're all quick to condemn that. But when it happens on the left, when people talk about how the Jews are powerful and privileged... It gets dismissed, but that mm. is also internalizing an unacceptable anti-Semitic trope. And so it's just as bad. We just don't notice it as much. I was going to ask a silly question. Who is hating? Is it the same people back in the day of World War II? But you just gave the the, the example of Kanye. And, you know, yeah. here's a different, a different generation of haters. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who these people are. You know, it's a great question, and I think so many of them are hiding behind their keyboards, right? And we've seen mm-hmm. this rise of keyboard warriors, especially during the pandemic with, with so many people working from home. Um, I mean, I get comments all the time on Twitter. Like, you know, during the pandemic, I was sent to the gas chambers via Twitter. So I, yeah. I have no idea who these people are. I don't really want to know them. Um, you know, within minutes of us posting a story today on our YouTube channel, Global News YouTube channel, um, about exactly this what we're talking about right now this rising tide of anti-semitism and and holocaust education within minutes we had a slew of anti-semitic comments and we had to shut down the comment section and we've only got got a few seconds left karen but how does that make you feel personally considering it you know i mean it's not it's not the 1940s but how does that make you feel well, it's very aggravating, and I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, but rather than being angry and frustrated, I just feel like, well, then I'm just going to tell more stories. So there. Mm, and I'm yeah. just going to continue to tell the story. Uh, that's the way to do it. Fighting the rise in anti-Semitism through Holocaust education is the latest from Karen Lieberman. It's on the Global News website. You can find it now. Karen Lieberman, Senior Digital Broadcast Journalist with Global News. Karen, thanks so much for sharing the stories. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. This weekend approaching is the anniversary of the Con- uh, Freedom Convoy protest that uh, started in Ottawa and then just kind of continued for about three weeks. It seemed that uh, those involved at the city, uh, police services, whatever, uh, just um, not really adhering to the uh, the intelligence that was coming in, obviously underestimated all of this, didn't really have a plan if they didn't leave come Sunday. And we certainly know what happened uh, after that for the next three weeks in the nation's capital until, of course, uh, the Emergency Act was called to clean it all up. Uh, we've actually heard more from the police chief, the current police chief, about preparations for this weekend than we actually ever have heard from any sort of uh, organization of a convoy, whether there is or not. Andrew McDougall with his assistant professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Always a pleasure. I think we've heard this week more from, and it really wasn't that much, a couple of days ago from the police chief on how they are prepared for all of this than we actually have of any impending convoy that's coming. Are, are you convinced that uh, there's a plan now in place and what we saw happening a year ago won't happen again? I think everyone's still processing what happened uh, last year. I mean, we're still working through the Public Order Emergency Commission and we haven't seen the report but I'm not surprised at all that uh, now that we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of that, we'd be hearing a lot about the preparations that are being put in place to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, is there any sign, is there any reason to believe that there is anything even close to happening what happened last year in the next weekend? There have been rumors in the last couple of weeks and months about holding some kind of an anniversary, but I don't think there's anything significant that's sort of on the horizon. But, I mean, I imagine you might very well see some people... Uh, trying to market in different ways, and I think the police are just trying to get a little bit ahead of that. Uh, we've heard largely uh, from Ottawa Police Service on this. Uh, one of the issues that was so tricky with all of this is there were so many different services involved and, and lack of coordination between all of them, whether it's the RCMP, whether it's the OPP, whether it's the Ottawa Police Service, whether it's the uh, the uh, Capitol Police, the police that are in the House of Commons, the security there. Um, do you think that this plan includes all of those? Do you think there's a consistent plan with all of the different services that would occupy that space? Well, I'm not part of any particular plan being put together, but I would be stunned if they weren't. I mean, I think one of the things that came out of that whole event was uh, the recognition of maybe a better need to uh, cooperate and collaborate across the different services that are working in the national capital region. I imagine they're all looping each other in on on what they're planning to do, and and hopefully they're uh, aiming for uh, for a calm anniversary, and uh, I'm sure that everyone's pretty well informed about uh, what the plans are that are being laid. It's been a year now, Andrew. Things have settled down. Uh, obviously, there's an inquiry that has gone on. We're still waiting for that, uh, the results of that coming up next month. After you've digested this for a year, what are your thoughts? What stands out? How do you capsulize this? Well, I think we're all still trying to process it a little bit. I think there's still some questions that are, are kind of unanswered, and we're waiting to, to, to see what the Public Order Emergency Commission comes up with. The question about why the Emergency Act was used, I think, is still kind of open to debate. Um, I don't think uh, necessarily it was the wrong thing to do, but I think a lot of people are still curious what it was that that gave the government in terms of additional powers that they didn't already have. Now, you don't want to second-guess people at the time too much. They felt that it was necessary. We're kind of getting a picture of what the context was. But we're learning about you know what, who knew what when, why certain things were, uh, were done. 
Uh, and also just learning a little bit more about why the situation got out, as out of hand as it did. What was it, the, the uh, communications and sort of operational failures that took place that allowed the convoy to take place in the first place? So I think the lessons are still being drawn from that, and we'll be paying close attention to it in, uh, in the near future. Will this be less about uh, whether the threshold of the Emergency Act was met in order to be called? Because I think most uh, academics would look at it and say probably no, that it it wasn't. However, as you mentioned, alluded to, uh, after three weeks of complete disorganization, it was probably needed to clean up the mess. Do you think we'll find that out? About whether or not it was needed to clean up the mess? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, this is sort of the question. I mean, it was obviously bigger than just what was happening in Ottawa. I mean, we could see some, you know, some of the infrastructure being seized. The border was under, uh, you know, some pressure. Uh, you know, there was some discussion about the role that sort of cryptocurrencies and other sorts of financing were being, how that was maybe being leveraged. I mean, a lot of the stuff was all going on at that time. So the decision to pull the uh, pull the emergency act may have been used to address some of that, but it's still not totally clear what exactly it was that it was it was being used to to control why it was necessary, if at all. And so we're still sort of exploring that. And I think uh, and I think that's that's something that you know people are still paying pretty close attention to, but we don't quite know yet. The, the Public Order Emergency Commission has not come down with any of its final reports or recommendations. Many were quick to point out that, um, you know, the convoy had no leadership. It had no direction. It was rudderless. Uh, th- there was no unifying voice. There was no plan. Um, there, there was no, nobody, many were even weren't sure what they were even demonstrating or protesting were. It became a wide variety of things in, in this mass disorganization. And, and, and I think that's accurate. But, you know, the big question is, <laughs> Obviously, the police and the services board and the city and whatever were, if not more, unorganized because they came and they camped out and they stayed uh, for three weeks. Uh, is it just any sort of organization uh, on the police uh, services part, a deterrent from them showing up again? I mean, why did it happen? Well, because they were allowed to. <laughs> Well, I think there was some coordination. At least there were some leaders that were trying to speak for everybody. But it was kind of a kind of a loose, uh, loose affair, as you, as you sort of point out. But even I guess but, my point, Andrew, is even that loose affair brought this town to its knees. Yeah, and I think that's everyone in Ottawa certainly wants to know what happened with the police services and the other security services to allow that to happen, right? And that's what the, a good part of the last year has been spent doing, sort of evaluating where the failures were and, and what can be done to prevent that from happening again. And I think that's why you're seeing so much communication now around the anniversary of it, which is trying to signal to the people of Ottawa that, uh, you know, they're aware of the, the problems that happened during the, the Freedom Convoy and that they are doing everything they can to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, talking about the one-year anniversary of the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa. Andrew, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Let's bring in Andrea Horvath, mayor for the city of Hamilton. Big week in the hammer. Uh, the ha- Hamilton front and center, the the center of the universe, certainly the center <laughs> of the country over the last uh, week or so, which is great because, you know, Toronto, hey, there you go. Look at that. Andrea Horvath with us now, mayor, city of Hamilton. Andrea, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott, always. And yes, I am. I hope you are as well. It's amazing how much exposure the city gets when we have something like this happen in the city. It's true. It's true, and and it's a good opportunity to to highlight some of the great things about our city, uh, but also to remind the federal government that uh, there are other projects that we might we like to uh, see some action on, 
And uh, we were able to do both of those things in a brief meeting with the Prime Minister. So tell us about this meeting. First of all, give us a little insight here. How do these come about? How long are they? Uh, what's the process here? Well, this is the behind-the-scenes uh, kind of a scoop you want. So, <laughs> Yeah, like how does it come about? How did, how did you find out? Well, well, I found out they were coming. Um, in fact, the local uh, minister, uh, Minister Tassie, who's mm-hmm. the uh, environment, or rather the um, uh, 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 economic development minister for the yep. Southern Ontario area, she um, she let me know that... Uh, that they were going to come and that if I wanted to get a chance to talk to the Prime Minister, I should maybe put in that request. Uh, and so I did so, and then I waited. <laughs> so it was a waiting game. And they do whatever their magic they do on their side of the curtain. Uh, but it was, um, it was, I was happy to have the time. I thought it might be a quick 10-minute uh, conversation, but in fact, uh, he found almost a half an hour. So a, a little bit of a brief uh, conversation before uh, there's a bit of a photo op, and then we sat and uh, had to you know, more of a detailed conversation about some of the issues that uh, I thought were important, as well as, you know, showing some gratitude. There had been an announcement that morning, as you know, uh, the previous morning, rather, in terms of uh, the airport infrastructure announcement. And so, uh, you know, the money that's coming for the Green Steel Initiative at uh, ArcelorMittal de Fasco, all all of those things are are important to acknowledge. Uh, But then talking about things like uh, homelessness and housing, affordability crisis, of course, not only in Hamilton, but across uh, across the country, uh, making sure that the government knows that we still have needs around uh, our uh, our hard in- infrastructure underground, particularly. So those kinds of topics. Uh, do, you, do you feel like, oh, my goodness, I've got a list here as long as my arm. How do I cram all this in in a short period of time? How, how do you decide what's where to go first? Well, you know, it's, it's true that's the case. Um, and uh, what what I did was I reached out to the, the senior staff and asked them to give me a bit of a, you know, a list. You know, what's the wish list? What are the things that mm-hmm. you uh, think we should be raising? Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I I took what I took what they gave me, uh, plus what I've been hearing from council members around the table, what I've been hearing from community, uh, and prioritized in that way. So at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, I have another two pages, uh, uh, Mr. <laughs> Prime Minister, <laughs> uh, if you want to, you know, you want to give me another hour or so. But um, so, it's, are, yeah. are these done in private, or is there already somebody lurking around, watching what's going on? Is the are there cameras always there? Is the media there? How much of this is actually in private? The, the two of you uh so uh, minister tassie was with us um and so she stayed for the entire meeting mm-hmm. uh, and, and she and uh, she had or the prime minister had one of his staff people and i had one of my staff people uh, just in case there are notes that need to be taken to kind of follow up to make sure that we don't lose any of the threads is it different talking to the prime minister as the mayor of Hamilton as opposed to the leader of the provincial NDP in Ontario? Is it what's it like to meet him and now you're in a new position? Well, it, so I've met, I've met him a number of times over yeah. the years, uh, usually very briefly and just in passing. Um, and uh, and so the, I mean the difference is for me it's it's not got anything to do with partisan politics at all it's just about advocating for the city um, making sure that that relationship is is clear that that's what my position is and he was very uh, gracious um in in you know acknowledging that as well and and so so the, the difference is it's about hamilton uh, full stop as opposed to my previous roles of course i was uh province-wide and, and, and provincial policy uh, pieces as opposed to um, like really grassroots local. Did he congratulate you for becoming mayor? Absolutely he did. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That yeah. must have been kind of cool. 
It was kind of neat. Uh, it was it was kind of neat. And and as I said, we had a, a an initial like hi. Just uh, wanted. He actually said, "Here's how it's going to work." Um, you know, we're going to have a quick talk here, but you know, we're going to have the cameras come in. They'll take the official photos, and then the uh, media folks will leave the room, and then we'll have our discussion in private with our our staff people. Uh, and that's how it worked. So he he took the time to explain it to me, <laughs> and then we had the meeting, and uh, it was it was positive. I mean, there's there's no doubt that we're facing some challenges, uh, and that we need the other orders of government at the table to help us resolve some of that stuff because uh, we don't have the the fiscal capacity on the property tax base to to deal with some of the big picture pieces. And so uh, it's always good to keep those relationships strong. And just like I met with the Prime Minister the other day, I've been on the phone and meeting with uh, uh, various other um, representatives from other orders of government. I've met, I've met and spoke to uh, a number of different uh, cabinet ministers in the provincial government as well, because yeah, that's my job. And it's been it's been really it's been really positive. Do you think he took away, the Prime Minister took something away from Hamilton that he didn't know? Do you think he learned something about the city? Uh, I'm not so sure that he, uh, see, he has a number of um, MPs from the yeah. region, right? So he's got, of course, he knows the country for a while. Yeah, and he's got, you know, MP, MP Collins and MP um, uh, on the mountain, Lisa Hefner. So he's got some, you know, he's got some Hamiltonians that are on his team. And so I think they probably do their best to keep him apprised. And he's been here many times. Um, you know, he's, it's not like it's his first uh, yeah. rodeo in Hamilton, right? Which is a good that, thing. That being said, it was a, you know, a three-day rodeo. Uh, at the end of the day, why do you think they chose the hammer for this? I really, I don't know what goes into their calculation as to uh, how they make these decisions. I, I really don't. Uh, but, it, I mean, it doesn't hurt that there was a big announcement that they could tie to this yeah. uh, cabinet meeting, right? And that there has been... Um, you know, previous announcements that, that really do, they're big. I mean, so particularly the, uh, uh the ArcelorMittal DeFasco investment is uh, significant, right? And so I think that's part of it. It's, it's, you know, where can we go where, uh, where we've been doing some good work, where we can, you know, make sure that the local folks get a reminder of what we've been doing and we can also layer on a, a new, um, a new announcement. Uh, biggest challenge for you as mayor, where we are in this global pandemic? I mean, it seems that, uh, you know, we're finally, it's behind us. I don't want to say it's over. We're living with it, whatever term you want to use. But what are the challenges for you and the team moving forward uh, from the city perspective dealing with what we have? Uh, well, I think the council hears on a regular basis from our staff that there's uh, been a significant uh, number of people who have left the organization. Uh, and again, that's not something that's... Uh, um, Unusual. A, a lot of organizations, a lot of companies are saying the same thing that, that staff have retired, uh, or staff mm. have gone to do other things. And so we're finding it really tough to, um, to staff up and, and, and get people, uh, back in the positions that we need to, to really be operating at 100%. And those who are still here, uh, who are doing great work, they I mean, folks get tired, especially when, you know, they're doing more than they would normally be doing because they're understaffed. So I, I think if there's one thing, uh, that would be it. Certainly there are still challenges around, you know, as you said, the virus is still with us. Uh, how do we make sure that we're doing everything we can uh, to help people, you know, uh, avoid getting sick uh, and or make sure that there's room for them when they do get sick to uh, to heal in hospital if necessary. But really, it, from, a, from a city perspective in terms of our organization, I, I really feel that there's... Um, there's some lagging effects uh, on our on our ability to get things done as quickly as we would like because our staffing shortages are significant. 
Andrea Horvath with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton, talking about the Prime Minister in town with a Cabinet retreat uh, earlier on this week and her meeting with him. Andrea, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. You be well, too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. You can hear him after the 6 o'clock news. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am very well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Are you surprised there's no Convoy 2.0? Oh, I thought you were going to say, am I surprised that the Prime Minister didn't come on with you? Okay, Um, let's go with that first. Are you surprised the Prime Minister didn't come on with me? uh, Not exactly, and it's got nothing to do with you. Although, I will say this. um, All politicians, uh, some in particular, uh, are tremendous at running out the clock. And, um, you know, it's, it's... it's tough sometimes because you get a politician on the line and you yep. ask a question and you know you've got, say, eight minutes with them. And by the time they finish answering, four minutes are gone and they've actually said nothing. And if you ask a follow-up question, well, there's the rest of your time gone and they're still not going to say anything. And then you feel like, well, what was that about? So, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it would have been a. Uh, I don't think we would have learned anything new from any of this. Uh, and and it is very frustrating because when you're sitting there and you're listening to somebody say, you know, the 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 typical lines that they always say, blah blah blah, supporting the middle class, got your back, all that other stuff. If you try to interrupt, then you sound like you're not let, allowing the prime minister or whoever to speak. Well, that's the big thing. Is if you jump in and try to yeah. redirect, and it works better on TV because they can. See the you can put your hand up. Yeah. But if you jump in, yes, you're right. You get accused. And I've done it. And I'm sure you've had it. it not just with prime ministers or premiers or anybody. Uh, oh, you're being rude. You interrupted. Well, yes, I interrupted because literally all the oxygen in the room had been absorbed by the length of this answer. And so let's try and get on to something that is not about how the sky is blue and the middle class is all we're about and blah, 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 blah. So it's um, it's always a challenge. It, it is a it is a challenge to try and and again I'm not just talking about the Prime Minister there so many politicians now that um, media training has become part of the thing and everything else have learned the art of blathering becoming frankly bloviating gas bags who say absolutely nothing and take all the time available it's interesting we were talking to Alyssa Freeman about this earlier on this week um, and 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 you can say the same thing for Pierre Polyevra so I don't want to make it look like I, all, I'm always politicians, on, all politicians all yeah, politicians all politicians almost. do this but what amazes me and what the prime minister and the liberals are, have have really been successful at is you know Justin Trudeau has his policy he has his ways he wants things done and if you don't completely agree with everything that he's talking about then you get put into a silo and labeled convoy extreme right wing uh, deplorables these so if you disagree in any way with what he's doing you're not in the center you're not center left you're not center right you're way over those over there with those deplorables who you know shut the uh, uh, Scott, city of I Ottawa think, down. I think people are seeing through this on both sides now I really do I think people yeah. for the most part people are seeing 
that, you know what, when the prime minister, uh, since we're talking about him, when the prime minister says, well, it's Polyev who is div- being divisive, mm. you know what, I think most people except the extreme liberal loyalists would say, yeah, you know, maybe he is. In fact, I'm sure he is, but I don't think he's the only one who's being divisive and yeah. and vice versa. When, when Polyev or anyone else says about the prime minister, he's the only one being divisive. Yeah. No, he's not. And people are seeing through it now. It, we're There will be a point. I'm quite convinced of this. There will be a point when politicians are going to have to learn a new trick. That, you know, in the House of Commons, this is the one that drives me the most nuts. When someone asks a question of a minister and they say, you know, why blah, blah, blah. And they say, our government is founded upon the principles of working for the benefit of the military. That's not what we yeah. asked you at all. Yeah. Let me try yeah. again. What is this? And they say, our government is founded up. And it's like, okay, you know what? The, the Speaker of the House should have one of those um, dog b- collar things, the shock collar. And if you don't answer the question, he hits it until you start answering. That like would, a cattle prod. A cattle prod. And if you don't answer the question, or or better yet. Try again, minister. Try you get again. two chances. You get two chances. And if you don't answer the question as asked, you're booted out of the House of Commons. You're kicked out. Which would, you know what? It would be a fascinating thing, Scott, if that was true. Because then you've got question period followed by a vote. And now if all of a sudden 15 of your ministers have refused to answer and you're down 15 ministers and now you might not win the vote, wouldn't that be a fascinating way to do government? Instead of that big thing, what's that ceremonial great big thing called that they have in the House of Commons? You know, the big the mace. Yeah. Just instead of, bonk instead, someone with the mace. <laughs> no, you just electrify it. You just have a cattle prod. Or ejection instead seats. Of, <laughs> that's right. Okay, minister, it's your turn to sit down. The roof opens up and out you go. Oh, that's a great way to end the show on a Friday. All right, and it's just starting for Scott Radley. You can hear him after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Always fun, Scott. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Frank wrote in to say, Hi, Scott. I got a trivia question for you, which might be hard to answer, yet might not even have a logical answer, or better yet, a true answer. Why has my home natural gas bill doubled all of a sudden? That is a damn good question, Frank. My name's Rick, and I'm uh, 65 years old. A month ago, I came down with pneumonia, and I didn't even think of going to the hospital because, of, you know, all the propaganda and everything, the hospitals are totally overwhelmed, so I just stuck it out at home, which I would have probably gone to the hospital before, just the way it is. 